right, let's take our seats again. Good afternoon. Let me just uh, mention a couple of things. Uh, if you need a Bible, wave your hand in the air. We'll get one to you somehow. Um, as Mike said earlier, at the end of the message, what we're going to do is we're going to have a, just a little song uh, for sort of a reflection time. And then we're going to have a couple of minutes for Q&A. We've done this a few times, haven't done it for a while. But because we're at the end of this series, we thought, let's just take the chance. If there's any lingering questions, either from today's message or from this series, we'll take those questions uh, at the end, okay, and so uh, we'll give you instructions for that. Uh, and then I'm going to slip away. I, I just mentioned that so that you don't think I'm trying to avoid you or anything. Uh, I'd love to stick around and chat more, but uh, I've got a plane to catch. So I'm going to be heading over to Ireland uh, this evening. I've got to speak tomorrow. All the teams are coming back together that have been out doing their evangelism all across Ireland. So they'll be coming back together actually tonight. I'll be speaking to them tomorrow and then bringing Hannah back on Tuesday. So uh, just so you know, I'm not being rude. Well, I might be being rude, but it's nothing personal. Um, so that's the plan. So let's, let's get into uh, this final message in the Dear Church series. This week I was looking at a, or following a conversation on Twitter. I don't know if you have that privilege in life of watching things on Twitter once in a while, but it was a conversation that very quickly moved from the subject to personal attack. It's quite easy. Social media does that quite a bit, I think. And so uh, before you knew it, the person was responding and saying, well, you're just uh," and throwing all these insults at this person. And the person responded by saying something along the lines of, I don't care what you say about me. Who are you anyway? Which is quite a good question, I think, for Twitter. You could pretty much say that to most people. I don't care what you say about me. Who are you anyway? It's implying that the more important the person, the more significant their opinion of you, which actually is true, isn't it? The more important the person is to you, the more significant their opinion of you. And that kind of explains why this Dear Church series has been so important for us, because in a way, you could look at it and say, well, this is kind of weird. You're looking at seven letters written almost 2,000 years ago to churches that no longer exist in Turkey. Like, how weird is that? Why would you want to be in here on a hot summer's day when there's beautiful weather outside, you've taken away the weather, kept the heat, come together, and you're sitting here looking at something that is almost 2,000 years old, as if it matters? And the reason is because it does. Why? Because of who said it. These are seven letters written by Jesus, the Son of God, to these seven churches. And every one of those letters includes this line, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And and I suppose what that means is that for for those of us who are Christians, we're looking at these uh, Bible passages, these, these letters, and we're saying, we really care. We really care what he has to say. We care about his opinion. We care uh, about how he feels because he is the, uh, the most important one. We believe what the Bible says, that God exists, that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that God the Son came into this world and went all the way to a cross to die in our place and to face the death and the judgment that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to face that, but instead we could be brought into God's family. We could be brought into relationship with the God who made us, which is what we were made for in the first place. And therefore, because he's done so much for us, we care what he thinks. 
Now, we've been going through these, these letters, and what we've found is, despite being 2,000 years old and written to all these different towns in Turkey, they've been incredibly relevant to us. We've thought about a variety of subjects. We've thought about how it's possible to, to drift away and lose your first love. We've thought about persevering under suffering. We've thought about uh, compromises uh, with the sort of religion of our age. We've thought about impurity and sexual sin. We've, we've thought about being insincere and uh, unauthentic or inauthentic, whatever the word is. We've thought about um, spiritual warfare and the battle that's raging around us. And that's just six of the letters. We've still got the seventh one to go. And actually, I'm really excited about the seventh one. I think uh, out of all of them, this is the one that's kind of jumped out at me the most and challenged me the most. This is the one that to me has felt the most relevant. They've all felt relevant, but this one has felt the most relevant to me and maybe to us. I was thinking about it and I was thinking, I'm glad this one's number seven because honestly, after this one, I I think I'd struggle to preach some of the others uh, with that same sense of urgency because this one just seems to hit the nail on the head for me, and we'll find out if it does for you as well. Now, the, the interesting thing about this letter is that it's, um, it's different from all the others uh, in, a, in a certain sense. That is, it doesn't have a problem, uh, or it doesn't have a, a cause for the problems in an overt sense. In every one of the churches, Jesus says, I know your works, and you know, I commend this sometimes, usually, uh, and I, I'm a bit concerned about this. So this is kind of good news, bad news, right? There's two that have uh, no bad news. There's actually two that have no good news. Um, but mostly, it's kind of a combination. And as you go through them, you find that uh, some of them are caused by external problems, some of the negatives, some of them are caused by internal problems within the church. So for example, um, the, the letter uh, to Sardis had external pagan kind of opposition to the church. Laodicea, the church we're looking at today, doesn't have any of that. No external opposition from a pagan society. There's no external opposition from Jewish synagogues and uh, Jews that are persecuting and attacking sort of religious oppression. That was true for Smyrna, letter two, and for Philadelphia, letter six, but it's not true for Laodicea, letter letter seven. So no external reason for there to be a problem. And there's no internal reason either. In uh, Ephesus, letter one, Pergamum, letter three, Thyatira, letter four, there were reasons within the church. There was false teaching. There was uh, kind of a weird prophetess. There were uh, bad ideas, bad theology. These, these, there were reasons why there were problems. Not with Laodicea. There's no external oppression. There's no internal heresy. This is a church that seems to be doing just fine. And yet Jesus seems to reserve maybe his strongest comment of all for this church. Let me tell you a bit about Laodicea, then we'll, we'll read it together. Laodicea was a, uh, a successful, a wealthy town. They had a, a significant banking industry. So there's a lot of money in the place. They were well-dressed. They were kind of a fashionable place. They produced garments of black wool. Doesn't that sound like just what you need to wear 
uh, going into the sun of North Africa, right? Or not that they were in North Africa, but Tim was. So, you know, why black wool? Well, that was a thing for them. Black wool, and it was fashionable, and it was popular, and like Laodicea, ooh, black wool. You know, like that was on the cover of the magazines in the petrol stations or whatever they had. So they, had, they were wealthy, they were well-dressed, they were sophisticated, I don't know what you think of sort of 2,000 years ago, but these people in this town had this thing called Phrygian powder, which they used to make medicine for eyes. And it was known all over the world that you could go to Laodicea and get eye conditions treated. That's a little bit advanced, isn't it? And so they were sophisticated. And because of the money and the, uh, you know, the banking and the, uh, the black wool garments and the, uh, the eye powder, the eye ointment, this was a very, very successful town. In fact, when the earthquake hit, I, mean, I think I mentioned it last week, there was an earthquake about a generation uh, earlier, a bigger one. I mentioned the one that came later. It was kind of an earthquake zone. But when the earthquake hit this region, Laodicea was the only town that didn't ask Rome for help. It didn't need it. So we'll take care of it. They just rebuilt their own town out of their own wealth. This was a self-sufficient, successful, wealthy, well-dressed town. And what we're going to find is that the church reflected the culture. The church had taken on some of that kind of DNA into their own sort of way of existing. And Jesus has an opinion about that church that we need to see. So let's turn to it. Revelation chapter 3. It's on page uh, 1030. At least it is in this Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. You've got little title to the church in Laodicea. So start off with the description of Jesus. Remember, we've, we've had in every letter a description of Jesus. He was uh, dead and then he came back to life. And that was relevant to the church in Smyrna. Or he, he had a sharp two-edged sword or eyes of burning fire. So every time there's a description of Jesus, okay? Uh, the description here is this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Amen means truly, like Verily, in the old English, verily, verily, amen and amen. Amen means this is the one who is true. He's the faithful and true witness. He, he speaks that which is true. And then it says he's the beginning of creation. That's a bit confusing. It doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he's the ruler over creation. He's in charge and he speaks the truth. That's going to be important in this letter because Jesus is going to speak the truth to the Christians at Laodicea. And sometimes the truth can be uncomfortable, can't it? But actually the truth is what we need. The truth is really important. I was just talking with a relative this week and trying to uh, figure out a, a way for this person to, to go and see a specialist at, you know, at the hospital. And what you want when you go to see a specialist is someone that's going to speak the truth. You don't want something that's just nice and soft. You want something that's true. That You want them to have the right information. You want them to analyze it accurately. You want them to do the right tests and then come to the right conclusion and then diagnose the problem. And, and that's truth stuff, right? You don't want to go to a doctor that says, I'm not too worried about the truth. Just going to make you feel better about yourself. You're looking great today. That's no help, is it? Don't worry about that lump. That, that's no help if that lump is going to kill you. 
And so Jesus is the faithful and true witness, and he's going to speak the truth to these very comfortable, wealthy, complacent Christians, and I think he's going to rock their world. Maybe he might want to rock ours too. Let's look at what he says. Verse uh, 15, I know your works. He always starts like that, doesn't he? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. It's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? Basically what he's saying, if you're going to boil that down, basically what he's saying, looking at their lives, the way they're living, their Christianity being worked out through the week, he looks at them and he says, you make me sick. What's this hot and cold stuff? Uh, this is something that they would have understood straight away. In their culture, in their town, uh, the, the thing, one of the things that was true of Laodicea was that in its success and in its wealth and in its growth, it had outgrown its water supply really quickly. They didn't have their own water, and that's really important. And so they had to pipe their water in. The, the water came in through these clay pipes from a town, I think it's called Denizli or something, a, a few miles away. And the water came in, and they knew what that water was like. They also knew what the water was like in other towns. Other towns nearby were famous for their water. There was uh, Hierapolis with hot springs. There was Colossae with cold springs. These were two towns where the water was the way it was supposed to be. Now, some people read this, and maybe you've heard this, that Jesus is saying there's three kinds of people. There are those who are hot. That is, they are on fire for Jesus. They love him, and the temperature in their heart is really high. And then there are those who are cold towards Jesus and their temperature is stone cold. They're like ardent atheists and they despise him with a passion. And then there's these complacent Christians who are kind of lukewarm and their, their faith is weak and it's not very impressive. And, and is Jesus saying, oh, I wish you were one extreme or the other. If only you were, I'd rather you were like, like those angry atheists on the radio. I'd rather you were like that than this kind of weak faith that you've got. Actually, that's not what he's saying. I've heard it preached. It feels awkward. It doesn't fit with what the Bible says and it doesn't fit with what was going on in that town. Just why? For, for one example, Jesus is described in Isaiah 42 as being one who will not snuff out a smoldering wick. A bruised reed, you know, like a, a reed that's been broken and the slightest thing, it's going to fall apart. He will not break. He will not snap that. If you're sat here and you're thinking, actually, my faith feels really weak. It's like a, like a little vaguely flickering candle and it feels like the slightest wind will blow it out. Jesus isn't saying, well, I wish you were cold. He's not saying get away. He's not saying that at all. He will care for you and tend you and, uh, and, and help you to grow and develop and mature. He, Jesus is not someone who just goes around telling people, you know what, your faith, your faith is pathetic. I wish, I wish that you were just an atheist. He doesn't say that. I think actually what Jesus is saying here to this church is this. Hot water is good. Cold water is good. But lukewarm water, ugh, it's gross. 
So if you've got a Hierapolis, you've got the hot springs and you've got these kind of thermal springs bubbling up and the water's there and you can kind of do the whole mud thing and you can get a bit of a massage and you can, you can sit in the water and you can soak in it and it, will, it has healing properties. It's good for you. And if you go to Colossae, there's the spring there and there's this cold water bubbling up. It's sort of the uh, San Pellegrino of southern Turkey. I'm not saying it was you know, fizzy, but it was nice, cold, refreshing, life-giving water. That's good stuff. And then you come to Laodicea and there's this pipe. And the water that was hot when it left the ground has come through this pipe and it's just kind of, yeah, lukewarm. In fact, it had picked up chalk. It had picked up silt. If you went into Laodicea with a glass and took some of the water and tried to drink it, I promise you, on most days, you wouldn't even be able to get it down. It would make you vomit. That's what they lived with. That's what they talked about. That's what they joked about how rubbish their water was because it wasn't pure. It wasn't what it was supposed to be. It was compromised. And Jesus is saying, hey, Christians at Laodicea, you're like your water. You make me sick. I wish you were hot and and healthy and kind of healing or I wish you were cold and refreshing and life-giving. I wish you were, you know, one or the other. But as it is, what you are, it doesn't, Work. It doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't really help. It's like you're sort of sold out. You're, you're just like your culture. And they would have said, what are you talking about? We're successful. We're wealthy and we're rich and, 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 and like we're blessed and we're well-dressed. And, and what does Jesus say to that? Verse 17, he says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying, look, guys, you, you, you don't have an accurate view of yourself. This is one of the biggest challenges that all of us have to, to face in life is that we don't have an accurate view of ourselves. Our flesh has this incredible ability to make ourselves look okay to ourselves. You know, it's true physically, it's true uh, relationally it's true we always think you know we're slightly better than we are at sports and and it's true religiously spiritually we think yeah we're doing okay and yet Jesus is looking and he sees clearly and in this case with this church he said you make me sick I wonder how many times Jesus if he was interviewed over the past 30 years whatever it is that I've been a Christian I wonder how many times he would have said Peter Mead yeah he makes me feel sick I think probably more times than I'd like to admit. More times where I I feel like I'm doing okay, but actually I'm just like my culture. I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-reliant. I think I can handle it. I'm doing okay. And actually I've just kind of let Jesus be a bit of an add-on. You know, I've got my my income and I've got my, my work and I've got my reputation and I've got all my things figured out and my ducks in a row. And oh yes, I need Jesus too. And I, I sort of add him in. But you can't just add him in. It doesn't work that way. See, Jesus' opinion of us, of the church at Laodicea, of, of any believer, is, is seen through eyes that understand everything that is, his eyes are compassionate, he cares, he, he knows the struggles we go through, he understands the difficulties and so on, but he also sees clearly, and he sees clearly that he gave 100% for us, and he sees through it when we think we're giving enough for him, and actually we're just kind of 
neither here nor there. We're not hot, we're not cold, we're not refreshing, we're not healing and health-giving or life-giving. We're just kind of blah, mixture of Christian and not. He sees that. And he sees it for what it is. And so in, in this verse, he says to them, you say these things are true, but, but you're wretched. You're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. They thought they were well-dressed. He's saying, no, you're not. They thought they were wealthy. They thought they could handle it. How often do we fall into that? It's okay, I've got my wallet on me. Okay, there's no cash in it, but it's okay, I've got a bit of plastic in it. It's okay, I know the credit line, I can handle it. And all the time, it's like Jesus is, is there and he wants to care for us, he wants to clothe us, he wants to, to provide for us, he wants to, to give us everything uh, that we need just to satisfy and to, you know, all the, the wonder of being in relationship with him and we kind of push him to the side and we say, I can handle this, I can do life. And I know I'm really good at that. I find it all too easy to say, it's okay, Jesus, I'll handle this. It's okay, Jesus, I'll take care of this week. It's okay, don't, don't worry about it, I've got it. I, I know how to do this, I've done it before. Do you ever do that? Or is it just me? It's so easy to push Jesus to one side and to feel like we're something. And Jesus, through his eyes, says, you're, you're pitiable, naked, poor, wretched. You've got nothing, what are you doing? But then he, then he invites them. And this is the thing that I love about this letter. He doesn't just blast them. He doesn't just have a go at them. He invites them. He says, I counsel you, verse 18, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see, what he's saying to them is this. He's saying, you think you've got it all together. You think you're rich and well-dressed and, and, you know, good eyesight. You live in Laodicea. He's saying, no, no, no. If you want to have true wealth, just ask me for it. You want to be well-dressed, not, you know, wealth not just for, for now but forever. Well-dressed not just for now but forever. You want to see clearly, not just like now but properly, spiritually forever. Come to me. I can give you everything that you want and everything that you need. It's not, this is not one of those weird promises where if you pray to Jesus, you get you know, a Lexus the next day. It's not like silly wealth stuff. This isn't simple kind of you know, pray and all your problems go away. No, this is Jesus saying on a, on a far more profound eternal level, I can give you wealth. I can give you uh, the, the clothing of righteousness. I can, I can give you clarity of sight. I can give you everything. Come to me for it. Stop acting like you've got life handled. You see, Jesus is not just saying to them, you're wrong because you're, you're not sold out living for me. He's inviting them to be that. Isn't that great? He's not just having a go and saying, and so, you know, I discard you and I'll find somebody else. He's saying, no, come on, guys. I'm saying some harsh things, but it's because I want to draw you back to me. In fact, verse 19 explains that. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Sometimes this passage, maybe some of the other passages we've read, sometimes they don't feel very comfortable, do they? Sometimes God by his spirit puts a finger on something in your life 
a situation, a relationship, a, a habit, a sin. Maybe it's a hobby that's just kind of blown out of all proportion and is starting to dominate your, your mind and your heart. Maybe it's an actual sin that you just keep going back to time and again. Uh, maybe it's just a you know, reliance on your wealth. Whatever it is, sometimes God puts a finger on something in your heart and he kind of pokes at it and you go, oh, that doesn't feel good. I don't feel loved. I don't feel cared for. And Jesus says, yeah, but I do love you. It's because I love you that I reprove It's because I love you that I challenge. Parents maybe know what that's like. It's because I love you that I'm going to stop you putting your finger in that socket after you licked it. It's because I love you. It's not because I'm out to spoil your fun. It's not because I'm out to to make you miserable. It's because I love you that I make your life difficult sometimes. And and I think we, in, in our kind of time and generation and culture, we're at risk of thinking that anything that's uncomfortable is therefore unloving. And if it's unloving, therefore it's not right. But the truth is sometimes love is very uncomfortable. Sometimes when someone lovingly tells you, hey, that's wrong. You go, oh, make me feel awkward. Yeah, it's because they love you. And sometimes God is going to do that in our lives direct through his word, by his spirit, sometimes through another Christian that comes and confronts and challenges. And it feels uncomfortable, but Revelation 3.19 says it's because he loves us. It's because he wants the best for us. More than that, he then gives an invitation, verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. This is a verse that's often used when the gospel's preached. Maybe you've heard it in that setting, you know, where Jesus is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. And if you open the door, he'll come in and let's welcome Jesus into our hearts. That's all very uh, possible. And, And if you're not a Christian and that image helps you become a Christian, great. That's not what it's actually saying. What it's saying is Jesus is standing at the door of the church and he's knocking. Imagine that, that there's this church and they, they're well-dressed and you know, they're kind of wealthy and they drive nice chariots or whatever and they're doing their thing and it's all seeming to be successful. They've got no persecution, no heresy, everything's going well and uh, Jesus is outside knocking. How awkward is that? Interesting that he says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my knock, he doesn't say that. He says, if anyone hears my voice. I wonder what he's saying. Hey, anyone there? This is Jesus. Hey, church, Jesus here. Can I come in? How, How awkward does that feel? And yet, what a powerful image. That he hasn't written, you know, destroy this place and walked away. He's knocking patiently. He's speaking invitingly and he's saying to us, hey, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him, to her. I'll come in. The the church may reject me, but I'll come in just for one person and hang out with one person, eat with him. All that's tied up with eating a meal together, the fellowship, the laughter, the joy, the care, the concern, the validation, the you're important, the I love you, everything that's communicated in in a meal together, Jesus is saying, I want that with you. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
I, I don't know about you, but I, I know in my life, I've given him hundreds of reasons to stop knocking. Hundreds of reasons to say, you know what, I'm moving on from here. Me just makes me sick. And instead, Jesus keeps knocking, keeps inviting me to invite him in. What a gentleman. He doesn't barge in, doesn't charge in, and doesn't walk away. He just knocks and asks. And that puts us right here at the end of the series, Dear Church, with a bit of a challenge, but an incredible opportunity. Jesus loves the church dearly. He's proven that on the cross. He's proving it through these letters. And by his spirit, he's working in our lives. And as we bring this series to an end, I wonder what it is that, that maybe has jumped out and, and challenged you over these few weeks. Maybe it's, it's the encouragement to persevere in difficult circumstances. Maybe it's a challenge to not compromise, to pull back from some way in which you've been sort of selling out to, to the culture or to sin or to something where, where Jesus has sort of diminished from being everything that you live for to, to kind of a bonus element of your life. And, and Jesus is inviting you to, to pull back from that other thing that's drawing you from him. Maybe it's an overt sin or a purity issue. Maybe it's, it's a definite, specific, maybe it's a general malaise. Whatever it is, I wonder what Jesus has been saying to you and to me and to us as a church over these weeks. Because one thing that I think is certain is that he loves us. And he, he doesn't just want a part of us. Just think about how that would look in a marriage. Hey dear, I'm home for the evening. Oh, I haven't seen you for a while. Why are you here? Well, because it's a Wednesday. And you know I come and I see you, my wife, on Wednesdays. Rest of the time, I've got other people that I hang out with. I've got my golf buddies, and there's a whole group of other women that I also spend time with. But, but Wednesday evening, that's time for you. Don't you feel special? You go, that's disgusting. Other women? Golf, okay. Uh, within reason. Other women? Do you see how just the automatic reaction is, hang on a second, there's that other women? What, how does the other women fit in a marriage? And, and Jesus is kind of saying that to us, like, hey, guys, I love you, and I want us to be close, like a bride with her groom. I want us to be tight. I want us to be together. I want us to sit together and eat together and enjoy life together. I want us to go through stuff together. I want us to face life as it comes, whether it's persecution from some you know, Jewish synagogue or whatever, whether it's some false teaching. I want to be with you in it. I want to lead you through it, the challenges, the difficulties, the health struggles, the financial troubles, the times when you doubt that I'm even there. I want to be with you in it. Jesus is saying, I want you to live for me. And I want you to live with me. And these letters seem to kind of raise issues for us. And it seems to me that we kind of come to a point where we have to either say, okay, yes, or no thanks. Not like no thanks forever. He'll, he'll pursue you. <laughs> he'll, he'll be gracious and they'll chase you all week and all month if necessary. But, but it seems like there's sometimes a moment in time where we, we have to kind of go, okay, Lord, this thing has been swirling in my heart for a few weeks. And right now, I just want to say, I'm yours. Right now, I, I just want to say, okay, I'll stop that. Help me. I'll, tell, I'll talk to somebody. I'll get help. I'll bring it into the light. Whatever it is that the Spirit has been kind of poking you with, whatever way Jesus has been reproving, 
Let's make now the time where we say, yes, Lord, I'll obey. Whatever the cost, whatever it takes, whatever difficulty I can imagine playing out, I'm going to obey. I'm going to respond to what you say because I love you. And I love you because you first loved me. And so what I want us to do, just for 20 seconds or so, is just to have a quiet moment for ourselves just to talk to Jesus, just to say, Lord, thank you for the post. Thank you for what you've said. And and maybe you know specifically this is the thing. Talk to him about it. Maybe you you, you say, well, actually, it's not a specific thing. It's It's a general drift. I'm not, as, I'm not as on fire for you, Jesus, as I was and I want to be. Let's just take 20 seconds or 30 seconds and just respond to him. Just talk to him quietly. And then Anina's going to come up, maybe the band, I'm not sure. We're just going to sing a really super simple song. But I, I hope this song can be a prayer. The words say this, I'll obey and serve you. I'll obey because I love you. I'll obey. My life is in your hands. It's the way to prove my love when feelings go away and if it costs me everything, I'll obey.